Hello, neighbor. I am Amanda O. Fox Gillespie, and I welcome you to Folk University's Friday Folk You Talk Show on CKTZ 89.5 FM. Ever wondered what is Folk University? It is an experiment in slow learning. It is a question. Can we create a more resilient and enjoyable community simply by sharing what we already know with each other? Folk University is an opportunity for neighbors to share our ideas, our interests, our skills, our passions with each other. And it is the only university where nobody ever graduates. Just a reminder that Cortez Radio and its board members, volunteers, staff, janitors, all the rest are not responsible for the opinions, advice, and information that you hear on the Folk You Talk Show. Speaking of which, the radio station is doing a fundraiser, and they will take anything you have. $10, a $1,000, $1 million, unwanted children, the bathroom sink. Okay, probably they want to stick with cash. You can pay via e-transfer or check or credit card at cortezradio.ca, or if you happen to be at the market, you can just find Howie and give him your, your bucket loads of cash or coins. So a couple months ago, we had Michael Moore join us to talk about the geology of the area and introduce us to the underwater world of the Salish Sea. Since then, I have read a London Review of Books article called The Sucker, The Sucker by Emiya Srinivasan about two books, both on octopus. One was The Other Minds, The Octopus and the Evolution of Intelligent Life, by Peter Godfrey Smith, and the other was The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonder of Consciousness by Cy Montgomery. So this article is so incredible that I could not stop talking and thinking about octopus for days. And I was lucky enough to live near my, my friend and neighbor, Michael Moore, and to start talking with Michael Moore about octopus. And he knows so much. And of course, he'd read both of those books. So I just want to give you a little taste of, um, of what is to come. This is a quote from the article by Amiya Srinivasan. She says, The octopus threatens boundaries. Its body, a boneless mass of soft tissue, has no fixed shape. Even large octopuses, the largest species, the giant Pacific, has an arm span of more than six meters and weighs a hundred pounds, can fit through an opening an inch wide, or about the size of its eye. This, combined with their considerable strength, a mature male giant Pacific can lift 30 pounds with each of its 1,600 suckers. Means that octopuses are difficult to keep in captivity. Many octopuses have escaped their aquarium tanks through small holes. Some have even known to lift the lid of their tank, making their way sometimes across stretches of dry floor to a neighboring tank for a little snack or to the nearest drain, and maybe from there back home to the sea. Later in the article, the author explains that octopuses are the closest we can come on Earth to knowing what it might be like to encounter intelligent aliens. 
I want to know more about octopuses and these strange, intelligent, humorous creatures. So Michael Moore is here today to tell us a little bit more about his time under the water and getting to know octopuses. Hi, Mike. Thanks for being here. Hi, Amanda. It's so good to be here. And I understand that this could be the last folk you on the radio for this season. Is that correct? Well, for for a little bit, for a few weeks at least, or until I can't stand it because I get such a great person who I twist their arm. (laughs) Come on. So (laughs) I'm so excited to be here on this last one. And uh, before I forget, I just really want to thank you, Manda, for bringing Folk You to the radio. It was an incredibly creative and um, intelligent thing to do to uh, take it from in-person lectures at Linnea on Friday afternoons and putting it on the radio for everybody to hear. And then, of course, you can always uh, hear these uh, broadcasts again later online when she gets them up online. I know it's a lot of extra work for you having to... uh, coordinate all that and do the write-ups for the uh, online postings but uh, it is so appreciated and thank you so much oh well it is absolutely my pleasure and of course you this is the the man saying this who has made it easier to have him as a guest than anyone else because he writes up all of his own posts and sends me amazing photographs and even last time curated his own music so um so it is always a pleasure to get to um to be with you and I appreciate you saying all those kind words and I have to say that after your last show which if you missed please do go to folkyou.ca or cortezradio.ca or cortezcurrents.ca and look up the previous one on the marine eco- uh, marine environment around Cortez with Michael Moore it was an incredible show that I have now run into a half dozen people who uh, many who dive and work under the water who have said, I've never heard anyone explain the world of the undersea better than Michael Moore. So so it's it's a not-to-be-missed one. Thank you. Well, maybe I'll start by just explaining, telling you a story about my day at the office yesterday. Oh, yes, please do. Which is, because I work underwater, I was out at... Um, Hernando Island. Uh, I work with uh, Jeremy Hope and Crazy Horse Marine. Uh, We put in moorings and maintain docks and and mooring lines and things like that. And I was working down at Hernando yesterday. And I've got to tell you, I've never seen the water this clear at this time of year. There is something to be said for our lack of sun, I'd say. And not only was the water clear, but it is getting to be warm. Um, My uh, boat thermometer says that we are in the low 60s um, in terms of temperature, which I believe is around, oh, let's say 18 or so degrees Celsius. And uh, so the water's getting quite comfortable in a wetsuit. And I was diving down in 85 feet yesterday and I could see the surface. And I was being surrounded by schools of uh, small herring. There, this year, um, the herring this spring have been filling Cortez Bay, and uh, I've watched humpback whales uh, feeding on them just off of Hernando a few weeks ago. Um, we've watched uh, salmon slashing through them and the seals eating them. And yesterday, I was surrounded by a school of small herring and striped sea perch and shiners, and just beautiful. And I was looking at a mooring line. Not only was it covered with our plumos anemones, the big orange and white plankton-eating 
anemones called metridium. But uh, I also found these really beautiful crinoids, and those are known as feather stars or sea lilies. And they're a very old uh, form of echinoderm, which the sea stars and sea urchins and sand dollars, that's all their phylum. So just an incredibly beautiful day out there. If you have access to the water, even a boat, Go out and play on these low tides. We've still got fairly low tides after the full moon. And peer down because it's never been easier. Or throw on a mask and go swimming. That's even better. The water is so clear. And you might get to see an octopus. There are plenty of them out there. In these waters, we have two types of octopus that are common. The first one is the giant Pacific octopus. That's the one that everybody is fairly familiar with, the Entro-Octopus Dolphini. That's its Latin name. But we also have a smaller one, and I think this is probably the one that comes up in prawn traps. It lives deeper, and we fish prawns down in about 100 meters or 90 meters, so uh, that's quite deep. And the way to differentiate the two is the other octopus, Octopus rupensis, it is... It is a smaller octopus. It only gets to be in the body, I believe it's about 10 centimeters. But what's really cool is if you look at it, it's got underneath its eye, it looks like little um, eyelashes, three little eyelashes that stick out. And uh, so we have the two different types of the octopus. It, the octopus rubensis, it does not get very, very big, but the giant pacific octopus yes it gets big it is the biggest in the world and the biggest occur around victoria and as manda was saying they can get up to oh they can get up to well over 100 pounds probably around 120 pounds and tip to tip on their tentacles they can stretch well i've read accounts of 20 feet 20 feet tip to tip that's pretty big And uh, so we have those octopus in these waters. And I got to know these octopus, the giant Pacific octopus, way back in 1980. Hard to believe that was 40 years ago. I started diving more or less commercially. And those of you that uh, are familiar with Victoria, um, up until maybe 10 years ago, the Undersea Gardens was right in the inner harbor of Victoria underneath the Wax Museum, just by where the Coho ties up, the Coho Ferry ties up. And I was one of the show divers. Now the Undersea Gardens floats up and down in the harbor and it's basically double hulled and the outer hull is flooded and um, there's win- windows in the inner hull so you can look out into what are tanks and the diver goes down and shows the animals. And, and one of the animals that we were famous for showing was the giant Pacific octopus. And uh, But what's, that's where you kind of learn how to handle an octopus. That's where you kind of learn how to handle yourself underwater. Because, well, we're diving alone down there. It's a controlled environment, but it's also an enclosed environment. So you need to keep yourself together and you don't want to be knocking over the reefs and, and structures that are in the water for uh, habitat for the creatures. And you learn how to handle the octopus underwater. And then we also would go out and catch octopus to bring back to the aquarium 
And when you go out to catch an octopus, a wild octopus, that's where you really learn how to handle yourself underwater. As Mantis says, they're incredibly strong. And, uh, well, just to say that the biggest octopus that I ever caught was 89 pounds. And uh, if I was, it was definitely in the order of 16 foot tip to tip. And uh, it has suction cups about the size of dinner plates. And they are incredibly strong. So I'll tell you in a moment how, how to catch an octopus. But we would go out and and uh, have to catch these octopus for the aquarium. And because we were bringing them back live, we had to handle them fairly, um, very carefully indeed, because they are a delicate creature. Very strong, but very delicate. So octopus live in dens. And dens are boulders or cracks and cliffs that the octopus move into. Now, there might be so many boulders down there that could be dens, but only a few will be dens. And you can tell that they're dens because they have all kinds of shellfish litter in front of them. Um, if you're working shallow, say less than 10 to 15 meters, then that litter will be made up of crab and clam shell. But if you're deeper than that, especially around the Victoria waters in the southern Gulf Islands, it'll be swimming scallop shell. And they're like midden sites. They're just cascades of shells that flow away from the octopus den from the entrance to it. And that shows that those dens are active for a long time. And first thing you have to do is you look inside and see if there's an octopus home. And if there is, you grab a handful of the shellfish litter and you reach in and you rub, and you rub, and you rub the bottom of the tentacles. And they don't like that. It irritates them. You know, that scratchy shell is irritating them. And they'll, they'll sort of retreat and back up and expose their suction cups and protect their upper bodies. And then, once you've done that until uh, you've had enough of rubbing an octopus, you swim around and you grab the top of the boulder. And... The octopus will squeeze its way out of the den. Now, Amanda had mentioned already that it can get out of a hole the size of its eyeball. They have no bones in their body. And they can squeeze their way out. And when they pop out, it could be out a back entrance or the main entrance, they will flare out and stick to the bottom. And you can't do a thing with them. And then what you have to do is back up a little bit. And the octopus will see you backing up. And it'll it'll gain courage. And it will change from white, which means frightened, because they can change their colors, to red. And it'll inflate its mantle cavity. That's the sac on the top that looks like the head. And it'll jet away, quite often inking at the same time. And... You have to hang on to the top of the rock because when that octopus jets, you have to literally shoot out after it. So you use your arms and your legs, so your arms to pull yourself and the legs to start kicking to catch the octopus. And then you can get it to jet into a goodie bag and bring it to the surface and into the boat and back to the aquarium. That's how I learned how to catch octopus and that's how I learned how to deal with octopus and learn to deal with myself underwater. I'll tell you, the first few octopus that you catch really take you apart. My tank 
I remember my first one, my tank was coming out of its backpack, my weight belt was off, and yeah, it was basically taking me apart. And so um, later on, I actually became a commercial fisherman, and uh, octopus is the best bait for halibut and things like that. So that's how I got my interest in octopus. I'm so glad that, you know, this is when I was a young man 40 years ago. Back then, octopus, they're mollusks related to clams and oysters. And that's what we were catching. And, you know, we were just fishing. We, I ended up being a commercial uh, octopus diver and uh, for the halibut bait market. And uh, now, we, we, now we recognize octopus as being intelligent. And that's where we're going to go next. I just wanted to say, too, that octopus, they're a very diverse group of, of creatures, the octopods. Let me just say that they are mollusks, okay? We're familiar on Cortez Island with clams, with oysters, with mussels, those are all known as bivalve mussels. But a nice, simple way of imagining the evolution of mollusks from, say, snail to octopus is, think of a snail. It's got a foot. No, think of a limpet. You know, those little um, conical shells that you see stuck on rocks. And if you're able to pry one off and they've got an extremely strong foot, which is a suction cup in itself. If you can pry one off, you'll look and it has a head on one end and a bum on the other end and this really strong sucker foot. Okay. Then in terms of, uh, development, that limpet, imagine now that the, um, gut goes up into the shell and the shell becomes spiraled and then the gut spirals back down so that it there's only one one opening right and think of a moon snail or one of your land snails so basically there's a head and then the gut goes up into the shell and then the gut comes back down and it poops on its head and that's an evolutionary advancement i guess and then think of that foot of the snail and then it gets divided into arms with suction cups. And you get a creature called the Nautilus. The Nautilus looks like a snail, except that it lives in midwater. It's got uh, arms on it. It's got precursors. To, well, it's got eyes on it. And don't forget, like even scallops have got eyes. They have little photoreceptors. So that's a, that's a molluscan trait. And, and the chambered shell of the Nautilus, that big spiral shell, gets divided into uh, chambers and that becomes its buoyancy chambers. That's how it regulates its buoyancy so that it can uh, stay in the midwater area. And then that shell becomes internalized and reduced and you get a creature called the cuttlefish. Again, bigger eyes, bigger arms on it. And the shell is inside, and it's the cuddle bone, that white thing that you give your budgie to sharpen its beak on, right? That's what the cuddle bone is. And then that cuddle bone gets even further reduced and becomes the pen of the squid. That's the only hard uh, part of a squid is the pen in it. 
And, uh, and then finally, all of that internal structure is gone in the octopus. So you get an extremely well-developed mollusk. The only hardish part in an octopus is its beak. It's made out of keratin, the same sort of stuff as your fingernails are made out of. And the beak is shaped like a parrot's beak, and that's how it hunts. It can actually bite through crabs. It can bite into um, clams and into scallops. If you, if, you, if, you give a, if you give an octopus a, a, a big clam or a clam that's hard to pull open with the suction cups, it can bite into it and secrete a venom, and that kills the uh, creature. Of course, um, some octopus are venomous enough and aggressive enough to be um, a danger to human. The blue-ringed octopus is actually the only one in Australia. The blue-ringed octopus is the only one that is uh, dangerous to humans. And um, I've been trapped by a giant Pacific octopus for quite some time underwater. They are strong, and sometimes they just grab you if you're hunting them. And uh, But I've never known anyone to be bitten by a giant Pacific octopus. So... They are highly evolved, the octopus are. They've got very complex nervous systems. They have half a billion neurons in them. Now, for comparison, that's about the same as a dog has. And a human has a hundred billion neurons. Their brain size to their body size is fairly high. And in typical brains, brain-body relationships, that is a a sign of intelligence. But the octopus is a completely different type of intelligence. Now, here's why. Our last common ancestor was a worm-like creature that was 600 million years ago in the pre-Cambrian era. In the Cambrian area, this is called the Cambrian uh, explosion. That's when creatures went from being purely grazers, grazing on algae in the oceans, to being predator prey, right? And when you enter into predator prey relationships, a couple things happen. The first thing is, is if you are on the prey side, You need to learn strategies to avoid being preyed upon. So consciousness, awareness, situational, chemo, awareness has to increase. You have to know if something's coming and you have to be able to respond to that. You have to respond quick enough and and move fast enough to get away from a predator. When you are just a grazer on algaes, you don't have to move fast at all. You can just go along and, and, uh, and you don't have to have any defensive mechanisms. But as soon as there's predators, you have to have defensive mechanisms. And that's where all of a sudden 
hard shells were developed, faster movements were developed, light receptors were developed, better chemoreceptors. So in the ocean, a lot of things work on chemoreceptors. That's taste, smell that's transmitted through the water. And so all those things were developed and so many body forms were developed during the Cambrian explosion as creatures mutated and evolved to in response to that predatory um, uh, pressure. And of course, if you are a prey animal, you have to uh, develop tactics to catch your prey, right? And you have to figure out where they are. You have to figure out how to cut them off and how to um, drill into their shells or otherwise incapacitate them. So that was a huge explosion. But our last common ancestor was before that in the Precambrian area era, and it was a little worm-like uh, creature. So on the tree of life, the tree of evolution, we are so far apart. And yet the octopus has evolved to a high level of intelligence and some would i would say consciousness and it's a completely different branch so its brain has no structure that is like ours anything else we consider to be intelligent let's say african gray parrots elephants orca primates they're all vertebrates right we all come from the same evolutionary tree, you know, but um, the octopus has come to intelligence in a completely different manner. So if you, if you talk about crow intelligence, the crow has got a high brain to body size ratio as well. And it's got, um, it's got a lot of brain structures that are analogous and comparable to our brain structure. Okay, and so that that's a fairly easy comparison. However, the octopus, the octopus has no brain structure that's like ours at all. It looks like a sack of sauerkraut. If it was hard like ours or prone to damage like ours, there's no way it would be able to squeeze out of a hole that's an inch big, right? Or the size of its eyeball, right? So it's got to be incredibly malleable. And what's really fascinating about that though, even though we are so far separated, we've, we've, it's called a uh, convergent evolution where, where different, uh, the same structure arises on different branches of the, of the tree of evolution. Um, they've got a, uh, a camera type eye like we do right where there's a lens and then the retina on the back it's just like the old film camera you know light comes through the lens and gets absorbed by the film and then goes up the optic nerve they've got the same sort of thing so two different branches very far apart but what's really neat is in 2018 they did an experiment where they had octopus in captivity in a tank and they introduced MDMA, ecstasy, to the water. It was absorbed through the gills, absorbed through the skin of the octopus. They reacted to it. They Octopus are generally very solitary creatures. Um, and uh, 
they 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 stay well apart from each other but these octopus started presenting themselves to each other they started doing acrobatics in the water they 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 they, they changed their behaviors completely so we know that they have the same neural transmitters as we do serotonin where did that start in evolution and why? How incredible. Just think of that. Use your own neurons for a moment just to think about how, how incredible that is that we have the same neurotransmitters as the octopus from so far away. Um, it could be that. I mean, we, we, uh, we don't know what outer space aliens are going to look at look like or or how they're going to think but um it seems like serotonin goes back a long way so it could be fairly common in the universe um yeah so an octopus when we try to think of their intelligence we got to think completely outside of our own brain boxes because they do more than half of their neurons are in the body of the octopus. So they do have a brain, a central processing unit. But we think that they think throughout their body. Here's an example. Well, here's just an example of what it might be like to have a diffuse consciousness like an octopus. As I already mentioned, they can change color to show emotion. Red is angry. White is frightened. When you see them on the bottom and they're in their natural environment, they'll quite often be very camouflaged. They're hard to see. They can mimic the background, not only in color, but in texture. They can make their skin smooth. They can make it bumpy. It all depends on what what rock, what algaes what coralline algaes are are in behind them and they can mimic that quite well but we do know that the octopus's eye does not have the same the same photoreceptors as as we do it doesn't have the photoreceptors for color vision so how does an octopus a creature that we think can only see through its eyes in black and white mimic the bottom and camouflage itself and why would it even bother showing color to show emotion the octopus changes its colors using um, cells in its skin called chromatophores they not only as they as they squeeze the muscles around these cells it changes the pigmentation of the chromatophore and so it changes their color but in between the chromatophores there are other light receiving cells that aren't eyes they're just light receptive cells but just because the octopus can't see color through its eyes and see the background through its eyes we think that perhaps what the octopus is doing is seeing these, they're more or less reflective cells, um, uh, catching the 
ambient light, the reflection from the light from the bottom, the light from from uh, whatever surface they're on, they're catching that and taking that and reflecting that into their chromatophores and changing their uh, skin musculature to mimic what the those reflective cells are seeing. Seeing. I'm not going to call it seeing. What they are absorbing. But does that mean that the octopus actually can see throughout its whole body? That is kind of a neat uh, thing to think about. We know that they can smell taste throughout their whole body. And on my last show, um, when we when we del- del- dove a little bit into octopus, I, I actually uh, talked about how I went down and fed tuna. Uh, seafin tuna to octopus um, just off of Cortez Bay. And there's a couple photographs of that on the write-up for that show. So if you're interested, go have that, have a look at that. The octopus uh, smelled, tasted that tuna in the water and literally its tentacles leapt out at me and it, it stuck its tentacles right into the can. I was very excited to, uh, to uh, check out that food source. It was, I, it was so far back into its hole, it couldn't have seen it. It wasn't smelling it through the siphon. And they literally, they can use their tentacles. They can go explore their environment with their tentacles. They can put their tentacles around a corner and explore around, check out for crabs and that without the central processing unit, the brain and the eyes seeing what those tentacles are doing and they can make sense of their world that way. So we think that they have a very diffuse consciousness right through their entire body and their body has no hard structure to it. It is a completely malleable body that can change form, change shape, and squeeze through narrow holes. So, um, hmm, I I just sometimes love laying in bed and thinking about what it would be like to have a body that senses through all every square centimeter and can change shape to anything I I needed it to change shape. There are forms to octopus, though. They have bilateral symmetry, even though they look to the layperson very radial, right? They look circular. They have bilateral symmetry. symmetry. They, They have two eyes. When they walk on the bottom, they actually have a forward and backwards motion to them, and they split their uh, their arms four to a side as they move. And then when they use jet propulsion, they inflate their mantle cavity. That's the thing that looks like a head. I'm not going to call it a head because all the guts, everything is in that mantle cavity. The mantle cavity is, remember that snail? You know, that's what was inside the shell, right? And that, and, and, and the lining um, of the shell is actually called the mantle. So we just call this sac the mantle cavity. So the mantle cavity inflates... The gills are in the mantle cavity, so normally it inflates and and constricts its mantle cavity to breathe, but it can inflate and they can jet through a siphon, just like a clam has siphons. So some of the old structures are still there, right? Gills, siphons, yeah, mantles, 
um, and eyes all all are common in the in the mollusks, but um, the cephalopods, the headfoot creatures, the octopus, squid, and nautiluses and cuttlefish, and and um, they've all taken it to a high degree. Um, so I just lost my train of thought on intelligence. That and. Another really incredible thing about octopus is that they have so many ecological niches and body morphologies. Here's a really exciting thing I just read about. In 1971, octopus were photographed living at 5,100 meters so if you need that in feet, that would be about 1,700 feet deep off Barbados. That was in 1971, and nobody had seen a deeper one since then. But in, in uh, 2019, just last year, octopus were found in the Java Trench in Indonesia at just under 7 thousand meters seven kilometers deep i remember the number it was it was three meters less than that it was six thousand six hundred no six thousand nine hundred ninety seven meters deep that's incredible the pressures down there are immense and there's almost no light in fact it's called the haddle zone haddle from hades hell darkness pressure and these octopus, they think they actually haven't gotten a specimen of one yet. They've just taken photographs, but they think they are related to the Dumbo octopus. And Dumbo octopus have flaps coming down the mantle cavity that look like huge ears. And they're named because of Dumbo, the Walt Disney elephant, the big head with huge ears and that's exactly what they look like and 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 their short stubby um, arms look like the uh, trunk of Dumbo the elephant <sighs> so they are an incredibly diverse and um, and special uh, creature hmm. where else can we go with this I know what I wanted to talk about so, octopus typically are very, very short-lived. Our giant Pacific octopus lives typically three years for females. Males might live a, long, a little longer, like five years. Five years, but four years is usually max for a giant Pacific octopus. And as far as we know, although you know they're always discovering new octopus... Um, and we can't say for sure, but as far as we know, the giant Pacific octopus is the longest. So if it's not the longest, it's one of the longest lived animals, okay? Uh, octopus. The giant cuttlefish only lasts one year, and it also is fairly intelligent, inquisitive, is able to portray incredible color displays on its skin as it changes those chromatophores and sometimes it'll make patterns and waves of of purple and green and yellow and red and blue across it peter godfrey smith 
you know, hypothesizes that that could be just its way of processing thoughts. We daydream and dream at night. They may emote by passing color across. Again, they're colorblind. Scratch your head and ask why. It's an amazing thing. But also, scratch your head and ask why a creature that has invested so much in intelligence and nervous systems, those are very expensive in terms of um, in terms of evolutionary cost. Not only evolutionary cost, but even day-to-day living cost. Our brain, our brain, what is it? It takes up 20% of the of the blood sugar that we put into it. Like when you get dehydrated, when you get hungry. I mean, that's why you get hangry, right? You're depriving your brain of glucose. It needs this stuff and it needs to stay hydrated. And it's a very energy intensive organ. And here, this creature that uh, only lives for a year or five years max uh, has this very energy intensive um, intelligence. Anything else that we think of as intelligent, really intelligent, like the African gray parrot, which can live well over 100 years, like the human, which can live 80 or 90 or 100 years, like elephants and orca. You know, we just lost Granny, a southern resident orca, who is estimated to be 103 years old. They live a long time. And there's a reason for that. Because if you're intelligent, or because if you're going to live a long time, you need to be intelligent so that you can you can know where to go for food. You can know where to go in terms of drought. You can know where to, you know, you can know how to survive. But why a creature that lives a year or five years develops that high degree of intelligence is a bit of a mystery that is worth pondering. The other thing that you might want to ponder is why they die so young. The life cycle of an octopus is kind of neat. They, obviously, if you're going to grow from something that's almost microscopic larva to a creature that can be 20 feet from tip to tip and weigh well over 100 pounds in three or four or five years, you're putting on food, you're putting on weight really quickly. And so they are fairly voracious feeders. Um, I just did a reading and found that approximately one third of the food that they eat actually goes into weight production. I would estimate that the other third probably goes into keeping that consciousness and everything alive. You know, like we're 20%, maybe, maybe it's not a third for the octopus. Maybe it's only 20% for the octopus, but just that metabolism would take quite a bit of energy and food resources as well. So they grow quickly, they grow quickly, and then they only get to mate once. Now, octopus are, at least the giant Pacific octopus, there are other octopus that may interact a little more. I've done some readings about some in Australia that go and live in big um, aggregations of separate little dens, but in fairly close 
proximity neighborhoods and and they have a whole social hierarchy and things like that but the giant pacific octopus as far as we know um they they are fairly solitary creatures and they only get together for mating so the male octopus has a modified arm called the hecto hectocotylus and basically it's an arm that doesn't have suction cups all the way down to the very end. At the very end of the arm, it's smooth and it's got a grooved slot in it. And what the the male octopus does is it reaches up and grabs a sperm packet from its mantle cavity and it reaches out to a, re, uh, a, a, a receptive female and reaches up into her mantle cavity and deposits the sperm packet into her oviduct. Ah, I did read that one octopus. Apparently, the female breaks off the arm of the uh, the the hetalock the um. Oh gosh, I have hecto hectocotylus. That's a hard word. Hectocotylus. It breaks off the hectocotylus of the male and holds it in her mantle cavity until she's ready to uh, lay her eggs. And she she lays her eggs and then spreads the sperm onto the eggs. Wow. (laughs) Anyway, um, the female... Uh, she lays her eggs, her fertilized eggs, if, if she's a giant Pacific octopus, in the roof of her den. And they look like sprays of tiny, well, they look like grains of rice and they hang down like clusters of grapes. Okay, so they're about the si- size of, uh, of uh, a, a big rice, a swollen up rice uh, um, grain. And the female octopus stays in the den she quits eating at that point she stays in the den she blows water over those eggs she blows water over those eggs and she grooms the eggs with her suction cups and makes sure that they don't get algae growing on them that keep keeps them aerated keeps them protected because you can imagine that there would be lots of fish that would really enjoy that rice grain size little protein snack and so she protects them, she doesn't eat, and she basically uh, keeps doing that until they hatch, and then she falls apart and dies. And when the, when the giant Pacific octopus hatches, it's actually little tiny octopus that come out of those eggs, and they are off to make a new life. And I think it was one in one million survived to adulthood. So they... The female octopus, I think I read that she can lay 10,000 eggs, but they only have one chance to do it. And the male, after after he mates, he basically just takes off and it's almost as if they lose their mind a little bit. They lose their protective uh, impulses and he just starts wandering around and, and usually they're preyed upon. What could prey on an octopus, something that big and that um, strong, you wonder? Well, if it's unprotected um, by a rock by or in a den or not being camouflaged, you know, they are pure protein and there are a lot of creatures that would like to eat them. I don't know if it happens in the wild, but certainly at the Undersea Gardens, I've watched lingcod 
grab a hold of an octopus tentacle and the lingcod spin at a high rate of turns. They spin and that's how they sever the octopus tentacle. That's kind of wild. And one day we were octopus diving. My buddy, I, I saw him on the dock later and he came up, he, he was on the dock and he, he was a bit white. And I said, what happened to you? And he says, well, I just took an octopus out of a den in about 75 feet of water. And it was a fair size octopus, somewhere in the order of 50 pounds. And he had taken it out of the den and turned around and was going to put it in his goodie bag. And there was a big stellar sea lion looking over his shoulder. Now, if you've been down to Middle Natch Island, and if you haven't been down to Middle Natch Island, I suggest you go to Middle Natch Island in May and June and to see the big sea lions down there. The big male stellar sea lions can weigh over a ton. They have necks the size of 45-gallon drums. They're a huge creature. And this thing was looking over Al's shoulder at the octopus. Al basically said, here, and gave him the octopus and swam away looking back. And the last thing he saw was this big stellar sea lion chowing down on this octopus with its head completely encased in the octopus's arms and suction cups. Pretty cool. So I think uh, if a creature has a chance, everybody loves to eat octopus. That's why it's such a good halibut bait. That's why I fished it for halibut bait. And, uh, of course, uh, humans like to eat it now. But um, maybe after learning of its intelligence, we won't do that anymore. So uh, where was I going with that story? They're huge. They... uh, Oh, after they mate, the oh, males. Oh, we were get... back to mating. Yeah. yeah. So the males, the males. There you go. They wander off, and then they get preyed upon. And the females, the females also die right after after their eggs hatch. And f- interesting thing, when you hold a female octopus in an aquarium, um, and this has happened in some of the uh, uh, has been documented, even though her eggs aren't fertilized, when it's her time, she'll lay eggs. She'll incubate for, not incubate them. She'll tend those eggs and she will die when it was time for those eggs to hatch, even though they're not fertilized. And the males, uh, they if they don't get a chance to mate, they will die as well. And, you know, could you keep an octopus alive by by tending to it and things like that? Um there there have been experiments on that. But first of all, what causes them to die? Uh, there's something called the Medwan effect. And the Medwan effect is where natural selection tends to weed out mutations that show up early in an animal's life. So if you had a mutation, a genetic mutation that showed up early in your life that was going to cause you not to be successful because you're not, you, you haven't bred yet because you haven't made progeny passed on your genes. That mutation is going to die with you. Okay. However, if you have a mutation that's going to show up later in life, it's going to persist because, um, most animals once will only live so long because um, 
they'll be preyed upon or come up with a fatal accident. And so the, the idea here is to, to spawn or mate or give birth before you get preyed upon or have a fatal accident. However, if you have a mutation that shows up later in life and you have managed to spawn and, and uh, have young and have not met with a fatal accident or be preyed upon, then that mutation can actually become enacted and so that's where late set diseases come in. So, you know, we often wonder why we can't live forever. Well, it's because our late set mutations will naturally limit our life span. Is that fairly clear, Amanda? It's clear to me. Okay, good. And 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 so in the octopus it appears that this whole effect has been greatly accelerated. You know, they, 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 they spawn uh, at a fairly young age relative to us, like just in, in terms of perspective. To them, it's, if they make three or five years, that's late age. But um, they just can't last any longer than that. They, they get preyed upon quickly. And if they do manage to... Uh, if they do manage to get past being preyed upon they're going to die anyway because of those late onset mutations so yeah quite a different creature quite they have quite a different way of experiencing life um i can't imagine you those cuttlefish those giant cuttlefish you know uh after a year after they 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 basically just start losing their color they end up with welts on their on their skin and they end up falling apart and uh, i can't imagine what that would be like to uh, have a fairly high level of consciousness and see yourself fall apart uh, here's how uh, just one more fun thought for an octopus i did mention that i had watched octopus lose tent an arm i'm not going to call them tentacles that's a common word for them tentacles but um they're not actually tentacles tentacles are actually arms on something like a squid which um ends in feeding mechanisms so the squid has got these flattened sections with with uh other suction cups on them that are just used for feeding whereas whereas a uh octopus has got suction cups right down to the very end um interestingly too that the squid its suction cups are lined with almost little razor ridges in them and uh, you don't want to get sucked on by a squid because it'll actually cut your skin whereas i have spent lots of time being sucked on by octopus suction cups and they just give you little hickeys it's kind of cute oh so what tentacle oh right we were talking about tentacles or arms of the octopus and and uh and the fact that you know so much of their consciousness could be thought to be in the arm of the octopus and what happens when that octopus arm gets severed um i've watched octopus arms crawl around if you keep them moist they'll crawl around and look for a way out for quite some time um they do obviously eventually need to be supported by their vascular system. They have, you know, they have blood. It's blue blood. It's copper-based blood. 
right? They have three hearts. How cool is that? But the tentacle will eventually, you know, it, it needs to be supported by the vascular system and by oxygenation and everything. So it'll eventually die, but does it have a consciousness when it's been severed? And, and different arms on an octopus seem to have different personalities. We talked about the octopus having different personalities. Didn't we talk about that? The octopus have different personalities. Some show a sense of humor. Um, and when they're being kept in tanks, uh, some octopus will shoot jets of water at people. Some will only shoot the jets of water at certain people. They recognize different people, even in different clothing and, and things like that. They'll just pick on that one person week after week and shoot jets of water at it. One octopus would shoot, didn't like the aquarium light that hung above its aquarium, so it would shoot water at the aquarium light until it shorted out the light. So they they have a, a, a sense of maybe humor, mischievousness, curiosity. They all have different personalities. So some are more readily um, available to come out of their dens and interact and explore, and some will stay in their dens. And, you know, when researchers are evaluating octopus, that diffuse oxygen, octopus consciousness through their body and looking at the tentacles you know they think that tentacles may have personality as well so the thing is is that when an octopus loses a tentacle it can regrow it how's that for neural generation regeneration i don't understand how that works at all and would that new new arm have the same personality as the arm that it replaces? How fun is that to think about? And those are all things I'm sure the researchers are busy trying to ascertain as we try to delve into the mind of the octopus. Amanda, have you got anything to ask or say? I have a number of questions, although you've answered so many of the questions that, uh, that I had. Um, how about we take a moment? This is CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. This is the Folk You Talk Show. And this is where we're going to play a little music. Uh, you get three guesses to guess what we're going to play. Uh, some octopus-themed music. And you can call in and ask your questions if you'd like of Michael Moore. Don't worry. I don't put you right on the air. Um, but I'd love to hear from you. What are you seeing under the water? Or do you have questions about what you're seeing under the water or what you wish you were seeing? Or more question about octopus is a wonderful chance to call in and ask Michael Moore. Um, so when you come, when you call, you can just ask Michael and he'll tell all of us after the break what the question was about. 250-935-0200. This is CKTZ 89.5 FM. Please do call in and ask us your octopus related or under the world water, uh, under the water world related questions um, at 250-935-0200. Zero, zero, and I'll give us a little octopus music. I'd like to be under the sea In an octopus's garden in the shade He'd let us in, knows where we've been 
in his octopus's garden in the shade. I'd ask my friends to come and see. In the shade We would be warm Below the storm In our little hideaway Beneath the waves Resting our head On the seabed In an octopus's garden Near a cave We would shout and swim about the coral that lies beneath the waves Oh what joy for every girl and boy knowing they're happy and they're safe We would be so happy you and me No one there to tell us what to do I'd like to be
Hello, neighbor. Welcome back to CKTZ 89.5 FM. This is Cortez Community Radio, and you are listening to the Folk You Talk Show, where we are super lucky to have marine ecologist Michael Moore on to talk about octopus. I just made up that title. So, and he's looking at me really skeptically. So, <laughs> but I have his mic off so he can't say anything about the title I made up. I might come up with some other ones. I think last time we called you Mariner. So maybe that's your preferred title just to stick with the M theme. Manda has Michael Moore, the Mariner, um, to talk about octopus. So we had a question um, thank you so much, Tristan, or that's what it sounded like, <laughs> uh, who was asking us, uh, are there octopus in Antarctica? Yeah. Am I on? You're yes. on. Tristan, there are octopus in Antarctica, and um, I don't know a lot about them. Uh, I know that they are there, but I will just throw out a, a fun little Antarctic fact because I do work in the Antarctic, have worked in the Antarctic uh, for the last couple decades um, as a Zodiac driver, lecturer, naturalist. And um, so the uh, the creatures in the Antarctic extremely cold there. And one of the things that uh, happens down in the Antarctic is, is a tendency towards gigantism because the larger the volume of the uh of the creature the less surface area per volume there is and so it's easier to retain heat and uh, um or or retain yeah okay let's just say heat it's it's easier to maintain a a, a, sta- a stasis in your body if you've got less surface area per volume and uh, so gigantism, uh, creatures tend to move slow and they tend to live longer down in the Antarctic, the benthic creatures. But the thing I wanted to mention, which is just sort of off the cuff here, is that in Antarctica, on the Antarctic continent, on, its, on the seafloor there, there are no animals with crushing claws. So there are no crabs or lobsters or anything like that. And... Um, and so the creatures there, they haven't had to come up with defenses to crushing. And so the creatures down there live fairly slowly and uh, and um, and in a fairly safe environment. They have to watch out for ice and things like that and freezing, but they're well adapted to that. But now with uh, the oceans warming, the Patagonian king crab is making its way across from south america to the antarctic continent and it's actually just coming up the continental shelf and uh, a couple years ago uh, the national oceanic and atmospheric association NOAA, had a submersible just over the uh, continental shelf and they were astounded at the number of crabs that were marching their way up and so the uh whole ecosystem of Antarctica, the, the, the subtitle Antarctic could change quite a bit in the next few decades. Thanks for that question, Tristan. What, what are some other regional variations that you see in octopus? Are they everywhere? I mean, in, in all the oceans, as far as you know? 
I am certainly not a, a uh, an expert in that. Um, you may call me a marine ecologist, but actually I, I would consider myself to be a, a uh, physical generalist. <laughs> and uh, that means, you know, I generally know a little bit about everything. Um, but uh, I believe that they are found in all oceans. Um, I know that they're in the Antarctic. I know that they're in the Arctic and they're in the Atlantic and they're in the Pacific and they're in Indonesia. They're at the bottom of seven kilometers of water and they're in the subtidal zone. So I think that's a pretty big spread in terms of ecological niches. And I, someone asked me this earlier um, and they said that the largest octopus that they had ever seen um, which was quite a bit larger, and they're a diver than they had seen in any of the other areas around the Salish Sea, uh, was in Victoria. And I think you said the largest one you had seen was in Victoria. Why would they be so much larger down there than around this area? That's an excellent question. I don't know if anybody can really give you a definitive answer to that. Um, I would say it probably has to do with the amazing flushing action coming in through the Juan de Fuca Strait from the Pacific Ocean and, and curling around Victoria, just the way the currents run there. And uh, I know that it there's a completely, it's quite a different area. For instance, there's big kelp beds. There's a lot of swimming scallops, whereas we don't have that here Um and I, I actually have never seen a swimming... Yeah, I've only seen a handful of swimming scallops off of Cortez Island. So it's a, it's quite a different environment up here. Um, you know, one of the really cool things about octopus that I'm, I'm beginning to... Uh, I really appreciate now is that in terms of popular... Uh, in, in terms of popularity they've really they've really uh taken a a forefront they um they uh they're found on all kinds of logos and things and people are talking about them there's great books on them now and but in in the ancient days uh they were known as devil fish and coastal coastal people actually you know thought that they were sort of an incarnate of evil we know that they have um curiosity and and i've certainly you know been underwater and had them come out of their dens and and grab me as i was working say scallop diving or something like that and you can imagine that this creature with incredibly strong and able to change shape and color and has uh pupil slits that are are long like a cat's uh, eyes turned sideways, you know, uh, could could actually be quite freaky, and 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 so they called them devilfish, and and there were stories of the kraken, uh, giant octopus being able to suck down ships and and uh, and eat the people on board. Now that might have been a mistake with the giant squid. The giant squid is huge, and and it battles with sperm whales. It's so big, um, so uh, in. Even in cartography, they used octopus. They used octopus as as a uh, oh, how to say. They they used octopus as a representation of of danger. You know, on on in in ancient charts, and certainly it was one of the more sea monstrous things. But. 
with uh, with today, I, I'm I really um, I I really am. I take heart in the fact that people are curious about octopus and that there have been so many great books written about octopus the, the soul of the octopus and the, and uh and and other minds and the and the rise of consciousness about the octopus and if if we if we explore intelligences that are so different than ourselves i i think that's really good for humanity even their latin name the 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 class that they belong to is cephalopoda head foot you know i think that was because they basically look like they had a head and a foot but now it means so much more because their head is in their feet or their mind is in their feet and their head so it all makes sense <laughs> <laughs> it's so nonsensical that it all makes sense um it's been fascinating and amazing and i feel like we could probably go on for a while and i've i know that there's been a couple of phone calls that have come in so if you didn't get a chance to ask your pressing question if you send it to you as in the letter u for university at folk u f-o-l-k u Dot ca. I will see if we can get the amazing Michael Moore to answer your question. Um, and we will definitely make sure we get him back on to Folk You talk show so that you have a chance to ask all of your marine environment or perhaps many other physical generalist questions to the amazing Michael Moore Mariner. Um, do you have any last things that you want to leave us with before you go? No, I don't think so. I think we covered octopus pretty well, although I'm sure as I walk out here, I'll go, oh, I could have told that story. But really, what I want to say is, um, yeah, thank you again, Manda, and have a couple great weeks off with the family, and uh, maybe we'll get to go out sailing. Oh, yes. Now now we're talking. i got to actually go out and experience the uh, beautiful um, weather and, and the ocean, uh, not just learn about it. All right, so I'm going to leave you with some, we're not leaving you. I'm coming back, and we will be having our gardening segment momentarily. Um, but I'm going to let you rest for a moment or two while I try to do some of the behind-the-scenes stuff to get our next guest on by listening to some more ocean-themed music. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, this is CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio.
You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. And this is the Folk You Talk Show, and we are at the gardening section of our weekly talk show, where we have one of the neighbors that we love living with in this community come on and talk to us a little bit about what they're doing in their gardening. And if all has worked, we have a really fantastic guests I'm quite excited about. Let's see. Lucretia, are you there? I am here, Amanda. Hello. Hi. Yay. Uh, <laughs> you sound wonderful, loud and clear, so I hope Good. that's true for I, listeners. I'm not getting as loud and clear from you, so if you can just speak up a wee bit, that would be great. Maybe my ears are plugged with garden soil or something. <laughs> uh, you, everybody says this, so there's something about our connection, so I will speak as loudly as I can without blasting the ears of our <laughs> beautiful listeners. Um, so, so forgive me if I am too loud or too not loud. Um, sweet listeners. So, well, you'll just know if I don't respond that it's that I didn't hear you. Um, okay, great. So, th- uh, so this is Lucretia Sean Farber who helped found the Cortez Garden Club. I have been watching with a great deal of admiration all the things that the Cortez Garden Club has been doing around just sharing education and enthusiasm about gardening in this area. And so I was hoping you could tell us today a little bit more about yourself, the Cortez Garden Club, and your philosophy to gardening. Sure, thank you. Cortez Garden Club kicked off 
uh, October 2018 with um, a visit from Nancy Turner. Nancy Turner is Canada's foremost ethnobotanist, and she came and spoke to uh, the garden club or the gatherings of people that were interested in her speaking um, on Quadra Island and also Cortez Island. And she talked about um, the, the way that our First Nations peoples handled their food and, and harvesting and actually uh, managing different garden, uh, what we would call garden plots, so all the, the wild berries and things. And it was a, a fabulous talk. And that brought so many people together, and that was when we launched the idea of a garden club on Cortez Island, and we signed up 100 members that night. So I thank Nancy Turner because she really got people interested in, and brought people together. I love it. Uh, one of the things that I am really excited about um, with you is that you garden both on Cortez and Quadra, and you have worked with um, helping uh, run, create, inspire garden clubs on in both places. And I, and as a radio station, we speak um, and broadcast on Quadra and on Cortez. And I always think, wow, we have so many things in common. Why don't we do more things together? And I'm curious as to... Um, whether there's any difference in in and what the similarities really are in gardening on the two islands, what are what are your gardens like in the two places? Well, there are always so many differences in gardens, soil, microclimate, and like you, I'm very excited to see more of a community exchange between the sister islands of Quadra and Cortez. When I was asked to take the role as president for Quadra Island Garden Club, it was already very well established 25 years or so ago by Eileen Mackay and a very solid group of people. And there was not a website and there was not a Facebook page yet for the Garden Club. So I helped to spearhead that, and we evolved from a hierarchical sort of club where there's a president and a vice president and secretary, you know, and all that, to more of, of a steering committee team effort. And so that's what's happening now on Quadra Island. So when we, uh, when I got together with some friends on Cortez Island, Judy Malik, uh, Matarima, uh, Judy Kemchen, you know, all of the gardeners, everybody on Cortez knows and loves and goes to, and, and the Linnea Farm people, uh, Adam and Tamara. We, um, we really wanted to create an opportunity to bring speakers to both islands and, and share in that. Uh, and I think the Facebook page which is Quadra Island and Cortez Island Gardens, and I invite everyone to check that out, has really unified us. And not only unified our islands, but now we have people on that Facebook page from all around the world. We have people in China, people in Turkey, uh, of course a lot of people in the United States and in Alaska. So 
the Facebook page has really brought our two islands together. And sharing speakers and sharing resources is, is our ultimate goal. But the most exciting thing during the time of COVID is that we can continue to share our love of gardening. And we can ask each other questions and, hey, this is what's happening with my snow peas. Does anybody else have this going on? And what the heck is it? And what should I do about it? And that kind of thing. So um, that's really unified us. And your question about the difference between my two gardens, I, I can speak to that a wee bit if you'd like. Absolutely. On Cortez Island, um, my husband and I own the fourplex on Greg Road, and it's it's basically um, well. <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't want to disparage it too much, but soil wise, it, it it it's 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 almost gravel, and I know a lot of people on Cortez have that situation. But when when we uh, took ownership of of that property. There was a beautiful. There is a beautiful orchard that Bird and Victoria Summers developed. They built that place and they put in the orchard. And when they put in the orchard, there were not as many big conifers uh, growing up on neighboring properties. And the orchard has really been struggling because of the shade. So. We moved everything south onto the south side of the building. I've started a fig grove there. And, of course, if you, if you have sandy soil and gravelly soil, figs love that great drainage. So we, we have a grove of eight fig trees growing there now. And I think just learning to build your soil up, which is the whole principle of no-dig gardening, is working really well for us on Cortez Island. So I'm growing berries, uh, raspberries, strawberries, asparagus. I tend to really focus on perennial edible landscaping ideas so that we have these beautiful plants that also feed us and that we don't need to plant every year like we do with, with our annuals. And here on, uh, on Quadra Island, we're at the north end of Quadra Island, beyond the Village Bay Lakes area. Have you been out this way? I have. I have good friends who live on the Village uh, Bay Lakes themselves. It's really beautiful, isn't it? So gorgeous. <laughs> so many people drive across Quadra as if it's you know a bridge to get home, and I understand that with the ferries you want to just go from point A to point B and cross over Quadra. But I really encourage Cartesians to to explore more on Quadra. The gardening community is so um, well-established here, as it is on Cortez. And uh, with the garden clubs, I should mention, Manda, that when you're a member of the Cortez Island Garden Club, you are invited to all the garden clubs throughout the province of British Columbia and possibly across all of Canada. So with your card, your membership card, that gets you into every meeting in any place, any community. Of course, now with COVID, it's a different ballgame. But back to our garden here on Quadra, uh, we have exceptionally fertile soil. And we've done a, a kind of terracing and and hugel building because we also have very wet soil. 
and um, fortunately the underground water, by building up like a lasagna bed, no dig garden, we get we get the benefit of all of that underground water without everything having wet feet. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's, I'm jealous. <laughs> well, anybody can do it. That's the beauty of no-dig gardening. And as you know from our earlier conversation, I'm, I'm a real believer in building up our soil literally, not by digging in fertilizers or doing any digging, but by layering uh, organic matter, compost, leaves, straw, hay, uh, wood chips, cardboard, and, and literally building up the fertility that way. I've, um, s- somehow this concept has been, has really been so popular this year, um, with, with the speakers and it's really inspired me. Um, I don't think I'd be able to have a garden where I live if it weren't for this idea of, um, the sort of hugel culture and then building up the soil literally on top of rock. Um, and so I've recently started really struggling though with under like kind of the nature of, um, what I'm using. And I, so I keep asking this question and I feel like people are going to be like, I've already told her. Um, but like, how much do you, then use mulch and then what exactly are you using for mulch and how soon when you're building a garden bed from scratch with seaweed and bits of wood debris and other plants how soon can you start planting into your hugel so that was a lot of questions i hope you heard them okay uh let me make sure i heard this (laughs) you're asking um, when you develop no-dig beds and hugel beds, which are, are, are rather different, um, but the principle is the, is the same, where you're, you're building up material that will decompose, uh, you want to know how soon you can actually make that a viable garden bed. Yes. Okay. Well, hugels are quite different because you need to give them time to decompose a bit, uh, in some circumstances, but when we built our hugels, we actually had such great soil on the property that we just m- moved it over and topped up the hugel with it. You know, hugels are, are bits of um, wood, uh, branches, uh, m- m- usually no bigger than, say, your your wrist. In some cases, we threw r- rotted wood on the ground that was big wood, even big rounds of wood, and then covered it over with layers of other biomass uh, like hay and straw and, and leaves and you know, filled up the, the patchwork area. And then we topped it completely with a fair amount of soil, and then we planted almost immediately. And the, import, the important thing is to keep it very, very moist. Uh, because that encourages the microorganisms and the breakdown of the wood particles. And I'm a huge fan of wood chips. So, uh, and we no longer have a burn pile on our property. I'll, I'll just say that in relation to the whole idea of, of, of hoogles. Um, we stopped burning the windfall on our property about four years ago. It was really my husband who's a biologist 
who insisted that we practice another system because of our concerns around climate change and and how burning really contributes to climate change. So we we now have a system for doing that. And instead of my going into those details, Manda, I'll let you talk to him about that someday. But when it comes to your question on on when you can plant, depending on the way that you are building your no-dig bed, uh, you can plant almost immediately, certainly within two weeks. And it really depends on the, the quality and depth of your top layer uh, of compost and, and soil, good soil. And I have started a new garden here on Quadra because I had um, a garden that was possibly going to be the death of me with lots of meandering pathways. And it's, it's a food forest garden, and I love it. But I have fallen over the, the rocks and the wood frames one too many times. And so we actually opened up our fence line and doubled the size of our garden. And now I have rows, Amanda, rows. And it's the first time I think I've had rows um, and the ease of growing vegetables with rows. But I'm I'm really blessed because I have both. I have a food forest garden with a canopy, and I grow gooby berries, grapes, strawberries, raspberries, black currants, uh, asparagus, everything with a canopy. So it has proven to me that we can grow in a degree of shade. And that's really exciting news for a lot of people too, right? It's very exciting news. So can you tell us a little bit more? What does food forest mean? Food forest gardening has become um, top of mind because when it comes to climate change, the idea of nurturing and keeping all the trees we can is is really essential. So instead of clearing out um, the trees around our properties, we learn to live with the the big giant two hundred year old maples, which is what we have here on on Quadra, and you know, we learn to live with the alders, which are actually not only nitrogen fixing for our soils, but they, they also bring more water to the soil. Um, and, of course, there's mycelia. Wherever we have a forest, a natural evolving forest, the mycelia are very active and productive. So a food forest garden is planting a perennial Garden that includes the, the natural forest canopy. And if you think of it as a cascade from your tallest trees down to, say, your, your hazelnut trees and your willow, I always have a willow because I love using willow and making willow water for transplants and for seedlings and for propagation. So, you know, I always have have a willow tree, and then you have the hazelnuts, and then you have your 
grapevines, your blackberries. So you, you just think of it as a cascade. And the food forest garden honors and keeps and works with the natural forest at the same time that you're able to harvest food out of your garden. Does that make sense? It definitely makes sense, and it feels exciting for um, a lot of us on Cortez that, just like on Quadra, there's so much forest, and um, always feel quite a bit of struggle to figure out like what what trees you take and when you take them, and what um, you know, and why you might do that. So mm-hmm. it seems really inspiring. Do you have you do you ever take trees then? Pardon me? Do you ever take down trees then to make sunlight? I cops cops are hazel, and I'm looking for someone to help me make, learn to make greenwood hazel furniture. And I I just want to honor and and give a shout out to Brent at Linnea Farm. And, And, you know, Brent has created a magnificent food forest garden in, in on that property at Linnea, as well as, you know, they have their beautiful production garden. You know, Linnea is such a phenomenal resource in so many ways, not just for food security, but as an, as an educational center. And, and Adam and Tamara have spoken at the Garden Club uh, about seed saving and about when to plant things. So, you know, they have a beautiful demonstration garden, an example of of a food forest garden, and I encourage people to to check that out sometime. Thank you for that uh, local model. I was also wondering if on your Facebook page do you share do people share pictures of their gardens? Lots, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, and you know it's beautiful because people reveal so much about themselves and, and the challenges that, that they're having. And, and, and we can all commiserate and we can all celebrate, but we can certainly all relate to what one another is going through. And, and, and really the Facebook page is about sharing our love of gardening. It, it's, it's so often um, the, the commercial gardening world you know, the ones that are um, that create all the fancy, glossy magazines and things, they, they, they really tell us a story about how our garden should be, which is just a, 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 a bunch of manure as far as I'm concerned, because every garden is so different. And gardens are, are reflections of ourselves, and they evolve, and they change, and, and they grow, and um, I just encourage everybody to love and appreciate their garden for whatever stage it is right now, because one thing you can be sure of, it's going to be changing. <laughs> and it's almost always for the better. And speaking of right now, what kinds of things are you working on in your garden right now, or are you preparing for um, as your next phase of planting? Mm. Well, harvesting is super big. I mean, I, just before we started our t- our talk, um, I've I've been harvesting red potatoes and raspberries and strawberries and fava beans and lettuces and lamb's quarters and I mean it just goes on and on. So harvesting is is huge. Um, 
preserving is huge. But the, the big thing everybody's doing right now is, is getting their fall and winter garden in and thinking about their cover crops. And, you know, the one thing that I probably have embraced and appreciated more than anything is how much the earth wants to be covered, how much soil needs to be covered. So you're better to not even weed your garden if you're, if you're not going to cover it. If you, and ideally, you weed it and leave the weeds down to keep it covered. So this is a time of year to make sure everything is covered, make sure everything is, is mulched well. And you asked about mulch. And, and, you know, if you're desperate, you can mulch with torn up newspaper. But ideally, you have some composted leaves, composted wood chips, some straw, some hay, grass clippings, which I use even before they're composted. Uh, But this year I've grown a buckwheat cover crop that's also my chop and drop mulch. And chop and drop mulch is really one of the more exciting things that's happened in my garden and my awareness the last few years. And and I give a shout-out to Linda Gilkison for that. Linda is a, a famous entomologist who comes and speaks on Quadra Island, and I want to bring her to Cortez Island as soon as we can. And she talks about just chopping down uh, pulling out your weeds and using it immediately as mulch. So that's something really big that's happening right now. And planning your winter garden and planting your winter garden. So you could put in fava beans, um, certain lettuces that are more bolt-resistant, uh, kale, definitely, uh, cabbages, if you have transplants. It's running a little late for the br- brassicas, to to seed them directly in the garden. Uh, but our Facebook page addresses this, and, and I encourage everybody to go to the Quadra Island and Cortez Island Gardens Facebook page, become, become a member of the page, a friend of the page, and all this information is basically there when people want it. That's so, I I still love hearing directly from neighbors and we've been really lucky on the Folk You talk show to have so many of the garden club uh, members come and share what they're doing in their garden. So I really appreciate that. And, um, and I would love to get more of the Quadra Garden Club people also to do what you're doing, which is to call in and share what they're doing in their gardens. Um, because it's, you know, we have so much to share between the sister islands. Oh, I agree, and I can help you do that. I love what you're doing, Manda, and, and I've been listening to uh, your past shows and your conversations with gardeners, and I, I, I just love it. I learn something every time, and, and I, I, I love how casual it is. And our garden club, when we get together again, we're very casual. Sometimes we just sit around in a circle and eat cookies and drink tea and laugh and talk about our gardens with each other. We usually have a theme and a topic. So, you know, there'll be a time when that happens again, and I'm actually looking into having some garden club Zoom meetings with the Cortez Garden Club. 
And I'll put out the word to my quadra garden friends. I can think of lots of people, um, Karen Dunn, uh, Janice and Gerald Amundsen, who have this amazing goat farm and permaculture place on quadra. Have you heard of them? I know them, and oh, I love them. And they have a beautiful place. And they are so, they're such good communicators. And, uh, yeah, you'd love having them on your show. So, yeah, I, you're going to have lots of people wanting to talk to you for sure. I love it. Can you also talk a little bit? You mentioned um, that you make willow water. Mm-hmm. Is that what you call it? Tell me how you do that. Well, willow water uh, is simply taking whatever kind of willow you have, which is salix. I have salix tortuosa, which means tortured willow or contorted willow, and it's the one that kind of grows like a corkscrew. And you just take a small branch of it, uh, you know, even twigs of it, nothing too big, maybe, you know, the size of a pencil or your little finger, and you cut it into two-inch lengths, and you put it in a five-gallon bucket, and you use about, let's say, three cups of cut-up willow stem and leaf, and put it in the bucket and put water on the bucket with a hose. Um, And then I go in every couple of days and aerate it a bit by putting water on it again with a really strong stream of water. And then the way you use it, Amanda, is by, after it sits for about three days, you you use, I use these yogurt buckets, you know, uh, Olympic yogurt buckets, and you water in anything that you're propagating. If you're doing a softwood propagation, if you're transplanting, what, whatever you're doing that you would either normally use rooting hormone or be concerned that it might not take, you use your willow water. And I keep that going year-round. And I've done something new this year with my propagating because I, I propagate a lot of figs. I propagate gummy berries. I propagate black currant bushes. And I've started to actually put a small twig into, as well as watering it in, using a small twig of the willow and actually pushing it right into the soil. And I'm noticing that things are taking root much faster and more successfully. So I'm really thrilled about that discovery. And do you know what it is about willow that encourages that act, that to happen? Yes. It's a hormone. It's a natural growth hormone and a natural rooting hormone that is in willow. And quite a few plants, like alfalfa, uh, I use a lot of alfalfa pellets, it, it has a similar growth-stimulating hormone. Uh, so feeding plants with plants is really a wonderful way to encourage growth and fertility in your, in your garden soil. And when we were talking earlier, you had mentioned um, about the importance of soil from a climate perspective. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm just learning about this. I'm anything but an expert, but I've uh, you know, and Dan Jason, who owns Salt Spring Seeds and who has spearheaded the Seed Sanctuary of Canada, has a, a 
his latest book is Changing the Climate with the Seeds We Sow. So I've been learning a lot more about it. And every time we dig in the soil, um, we release carbon. So by not only do we re- release carbon, but we, we disturb the microorganisms that are, that are in the soil. And soil is a, a wonderful, I don't know if this is a word or not, but I'm going to say it, sequesterer. <laughs> uh, it sequesters carbon in the atmosphere. So by building up from the soil, rather than disturbing the soil, turning the soil over, uh, we're playing an important part in, in, in keeping the carbon in the soil. And, you know, an, another benefit is we're not exposing weeds um, to, to the surface. So we're not bringing those. We're actually smothering the weeds and letting them do the great job they do by naturally decaying in place and feeding the microorganisms in the soil. So the whole concept of, of no dig is, is a win-win from soil microorganisms to the atmosphere. It's so inspiring. I really appreciate it. I love the idea of, of not digging. <laughs> things about it aren't there (laughs) i mean just i used to dig and double dig and triple dig sometimes you know and and um yeah i'm really i'm really happy with how our garden has grown you know just in since january we we started to smother the pasture land and with cardboard and layering our our wood chips on you know of course wood chips really encourage my uh, mycelial uh, uh, colonization, which is one of the most important things that we want in the garden. So, you know, and just layering it with whatever you have. One of the things we've really learned is how many resources we have directly on our our land and directly in our community. It's It's really been a wonderful thing to realize. We are so lucky to to live here and to have people like you um, helping to remind us about all of the incredible resources we have. Thank you so much, Lou, for coming on today and sharing with us. Will you remind us of the Facebook page for the Garden Clubs of Cortez and Quadra? Yes, Quadra Island and Cortez Island Gardens. So just think of the gardens of Quadra and Cortez Island. And the the Facebook page that um, Jennifer Banks-Dahl created for us on Quadra Island is quadraislandgardenclub.com. And there's also a lot of information and, and resources and um, links to speakers that we've had, uh, different blogs, so... Quadra Island Gardeners are blogging on the Quadra Island Garden Club Facebook page. It's wonderful. Thank I'm you. I'm sorry. Wait a minute. Quadra oh. Island Garden Club website, oh, not the great. Facebook page. But we also have blogs for the Facebook page. So there you go. Um, that's wonderful because some people I know are more drawn to uh, websites than Facebook. Um, and mm-hmm. if you're not drawn to anything at all, that's okay too, because I'll just keep bringing amazing people like Lou onto the radio. Um, thank you again for joining us today. I really appreciate it and look for so, uh, forward to so much more together. Thank you, Amanda. And, and thank you for what you're doing and the way that you're doing it. It's just a pleasure to hear your show. 
My, oh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Okay. Happy gardening. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, neighbor, for being here to learn and share and show up for for our neighborhood, for our community together. It's been a wonderful um, time together. It's been really exciting how supported I've, I have personally been in taking Folk U here onto the radio at CKTZ, uh, Cortez Community Radio, 89.5 FM. The radio station is a really incredible group of mostly volunteers. Um, today, Howie, the, uh, the, the forefront, the figurehead volunteer, gave me a beautiful handmade box as just sort of a little thank you for... Um, being here and showing up. And um, I highly encourage all of you that if you want to have a radio show or bring something to the community, that you can do that. And also that if you don't want to make that kind of big commitment, but you have something that is of interest to you, you have a particular skill, something that you've learned, and we have all learned so much if we've been living here Um that I, I would like to have you onto the show. It's a great time over the next few weeks as I'm going to be digging down to apply for grants and turn in grants and think about the next season. Reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. Would you like to be a guest? Would you Do you know a neighbor that you wish would come on and talk about something they know? Or do you know someone far, far away who's been thinking or doing or dreaming about something that might be um, pertinent for us here on the islands of the Salish Sea. I'd love to talk with them. I'd love to hear your ideas and I'd love to support you and your community work as well. So reach out to me. You can do that at the letter U at folkyou.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. You can also find all of our past shows at that same website, folkyou.ca, including today's show where we had Michael Moore talking about the incredible, intelligent, mysterious octopus, as well as Lucretia Sean Farber talking about the Cortez Garden Club, her own garden, Quadra Garden Clubs, and so much more. So And all sorts of past shows, including we had a fantastic past show with Whitney, um, which was one of the first shows we did. I hope the sound quality on that is okay, where she talked a lot more in depth about how to start your own compost, how to create your own soil for just with the resources that we have right here um, on this land here. So a lot of inspiring people, wonderful past shows. I hope you'll go and listen to some of those and learn and share with me what you would like to have in the future. Also, if you haven't already found your way to CortezCurrents.ca, they also host the past Folk You shows, as well as do regular, pretty much daily news on things happening in the Salish Sea. So you do not have to wonder what's going on anymore. There's some incredible journalism being published there. I highly recommend that you t- check that out at CortezCurrents.ca. You are listening to Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ, on the web at CortezRadio.com. 
www.thepowerhouse.ca. I hope you learned something new today, neighbor. I sure did. I look forward to being with you again in just a few weeks. And until that time, please do reach out and enjoy a little bit more ocean-themed music and each other. This silences me trying to figure out how to multitask. All right, now I've got it. Like me told you, no, something's left. And we're all alone.